all know the damage that fires are capable of. What we don't always understand is the cause, behavior, and what to do in the aftermath of a fire. Today, you'll understand these aspects just a little bit more. Welcome to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. We will give you tips on fire prevention, how to deal with insurance matters, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Donna and Mike. Hello, and welcome to Speaking of Fire. This is Mike Flatman, a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators, and honored to be so. Also, the president of Fire Consulting International and uh, FireAnalysis.com, and the manager of uh, CFIS, Consolidated Fire Investigation Services, 200 investigators all over the country. And this is Donna Ingram. I'm a past director of the International Association of Arts and Investigators, have over 30 years' experience in this field, and welcome to Speaking of Fire. Yes, thank, thank you. you, Donna, for being there. And today we, have, we are honored to have a renowned Ph.D., uh, Dr. Vito Babraskas, who has, was the first person ever to re- receive a Ph.D., degree in fire safety science. In 1976, he was awarded his Ph.D. as a fire protection engineering, uh, in fire protection engineering, and and the distinction between fire safety science and fire protection engineering was not made until the 1980s. He has been a researcher and a research manager at NIST, the National Institute of Science and Technology. He has uh, developed a furniture calometer, uh, and the cone kilometer, he was awarded. He was awarded the PhD. R&D, uh, he, was away, he was awarded a R&D uh, 100 award in 1998. And in 1992, he he, he had a textbook. Uh, he wrote a textbook. He released in, in fires and fire deha- and he's written um, uh, and extensively fire behavior of uh, in upholstered furniture and masses. Uh, I'm sorry, mattresses, and he is um, recently, and we want to talk to him a lot about this, uh, he's, uh, he published the Massive uh, Ignition Handbook, which I use, um, it's, it's 1116 pages, and will give you the ignition temperature about anything you can ever think of. He also uh, has, been, uh, has been the editor of three editions of Fire Science Applications to Fire Investigations, and is currently working on electrical fires and explosions, which is similar to the ignition handbook. Doctor, thank you for being here. Um, we really appreciate it. Well, thank you, thank you, Mike, for inviting me. Yes, and, and Doctor, and I, I have to tell you, uh, one of the first times in my career I'm starstruck here. And <laughs> <laughs> this is Donna, and I actually am, and I am so honored to have you on the show. And I know you have been... I mean, you are the fire safety person. You've worked in the fire safety science a long time. Uh, you're one of the best known. I've known about you for years. You didn't know I existed, but I knew about you. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the field itself? Yeah, I think that's a, a, a great place to start. And because uh, uh, most people, even, even a lot of uh, younger people that work in the field, are not very familiar with what the history was. Well, let me give you a little bit of a, a history because I think that will be interesting to, to a lot of people. The um, um, history of 
fire safety science, uh, in some sense, started in about the 1880s. And in the 1880s, we started having the era of mid-rise and higher, uh, some high-rise buildings that were being built in um, a, typically in wrought iron uh, or with also with some cast iron components. Uh, this was occurring uh, a lot in New York City, but it was also occurring in other places uh, around the world. And uh, pretty soon it was realized that even though uh, iron and steel do not burn, that uh, they may uh, collapse in the case of a fire if the fire is um, sufficiently severe. And you also have to keep in mind that the wrought iron, unlike the steel that we use for building buildings today, the wrought iron that was used in the 1880s was a very brittle, very difficult material. Uh, we really do not expect um, uh, steel frame buildings to um, be collapsing today, but in New York City in the 1880s, uh, when they built out of uh, wrought iron instead of steel, that was uh, common, and that obviously was a, a scary thing. So the um, architects primarily, and also materials producers, etc., kind of rallied and said, let us uh, start investigating how to uh, produce fire safety. So that was uh, a, it's hard to say that this really was science. It was, it was basically technology, but it was fire safety technology, and it was focused on testing, on safety-oriented testing, what nowadays we would call fire-resistance tests. In other words, you stick something into a furnace and you see how long it will take before the structural performance of that um, uh, chunk of a building gets to be compromised and it fails to do its um, intended job. So. That was uh, a very active area in the last two decades of the, the 19th century. Uh, by about uh, the start of the 20th century, these things got to be somewhat uh, well in hand, and it became pretty routine. That building code started appearing in the early part of the 20th century that uh, laid down a prescription and how you have to do these kinds of things. And it became a fairly um, a intellectually not a challenging activity. In other words, you needed good people to take care of the details, but really it was uh, building codes and building code applications, sort of uh, uh, good work for technicians, but not really what you would call um, a science as such. Um, the, a, the, the real a, a flowering of science in the fire safety area started around 1950 in the UK. At, there was an institution there called Fire Research Station, FRS, and they, the government, the British government, um, hired a bunch of PhD type um, the scientists to go staff uh, those labs and to start doing some bona fide scientific research on 
the nature of fires, how they develop, how they progress, uh, how uh, ignitions occur, spontaneous combustions, various uh, things, how sprinklers uh, put water on the fire, things like that. Um, and that, that was great work from about 1950 to about 1975, at which point they, the government in their infinite wisdom decided to uh, a, reduce the place to a mere shell of its uh, former self. Uh, but that was important science work. The, um, that was not happening in the U.S. or in North America. In the U.S. and in North America, up until about 1970, we basically were just uh, staying with the building codes. That the um, starting in 1950, um, the uh, NFPA uh, originally formulated what's was now called Society of Fire Protection Engineers, and mm -hmm. so they were professionals. They were engineers who were to uh, work in the fire safety area. Well, their work uh, was on a higher level than that of technicians, but they still, they, they were not doing science research. They were uh, doing simply uh, design of sprinklers, design of uh, smoke exhaust systems, design of stairways, things, things like that that are um, uh, safety-related features of a building. And so that continued in the U.S. from 1950 to 1970. And um, in 1970, uh, something very remarkable happened, that the National Science Foundation, which is a federally chartered uh, agency for basically giving money to universities to do research and pretty big uh, chunks of money. Uh, up until that point, you had to be uh, doing uh, basic research in physics or chemistry or biology or some other area of the sciences. They did not consider that engineering or applied sciences were within their bailiwick. Well, in 1970, they formed something called RAN, R-A-N-N, Research Applied to National Needs. And they said, uh, well, there are some engineering-type areas which also need uh, science research, and since nobody else seems to be out there funding that, um, we better do it. And one of the areas uh, at the very start that was uh, nominated for that was fire safety. So in the 1970 to 71 uh, era, they went out to American universities and they solicited on the order of about a dozen major schools like uh, Harvard, uh, Johns Hopkins, University of Utah, and uh, another one was um, University of California, Berkeley. And uh, they said, uh, we want proposals for research in fire safety and how you're going to apply science to um, studying the fire safety problems. And mm -hmm. so that was a, a real a break with tradition, and we nowadays date 
fire safety science in America to about the year 1970, which is uh, the first time that any significant uh, funds were being expended for it. Um, so that was, you know, after that, the, the program was not long-lasting. It, uh, but it kick-started the research. It eventually got folded into a sub-entity within um, my former employer in IST, and there still exist vestiges of that, but it's, uh, it's uh, pretty limited vestiges. But uh, it got the hey, doctor, profession off to so a start. And doctor, doctor, and you, so you had your, you got your, in 1976, you were awarded a PhD in fire protection engineering, and, uh, and you were doing safety science um, uh, and, and fire protection engineering um, then, weren't you? I mean, and, and, and then you later formed your own, a consulting firm, Fire Science and Technology Inc., and you've, you've been doing that since '95, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the um, you know I was I, I was very fortunate because I was in the right place at the right time. Uh, in 1972, I decided to join the fire um, safety activities that uh, I'd been there from 1971 in Berkeley, and so I was able to uh, a become a staffer at what was actually the largest of these um, a large university uh, research programs. And that uh, was a very fortunate thing for myself. And it uh, let me get in basically at the ground floor level into how the profession was uh, developing in, in America. So that was your first, uh, that was your first uh, of so your first bit of the early involvement in the field, right, was, was then, right, at the University of, of California, Berkeley? Exactly. And there really was, you know, to be honest, there was no better place for doing that because it was by far the most ambitious. You know, there was something like, I think, 11 or 12 different professors that were associated with the project at Berkeley, which is, you know, typically these types of uh, um, research programs have, you know, one, two, three professors, but to have that many was uh, remarkable. Yeah, and you um, eventually, I mean, you you started doing a lot of work. Um, uh, you're closely associated with the concept of taste, uh, of testing of heat release rates and stuff, and 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 it did. So it all comes out of that initial um, study with them, right? Um, at that time. Well, you know, it's a very interesting, uh, I can tell you the story on that, too, because uh, that came a little bit later. But when I was actually still a grad student at Berkeley, we had Mm -hmm. uh, a visitor. There was, at that time, quite a famous fire protection engineer named Rexford Wilson. And uh, he was one of the nationally really prominent people in the profession, and he was very eager to promote research. And so he came up there, he saw what I was doing, he saw what Professor Brady Williamson, who was the professor I was working for, was doing, and he sort of pulled me aside and he said, well, Vito, you know, I'm a practitioner, and to me, uh, the most important shortcoming, what uh, science has not given us, is to quantitatively measure how big is a fire. And Mm -hmm. so we actually went into the lab, we did a few sort of very ad hoc experiments, and I said, you know, yeah, Rex, you know, this is a 
this is a great idea. Unfortunately, Berkeley was not set up to, to do that kind of work, so I, I was doing fire resistance type of research there. But um, the opportunity arose in 1977. I went to NIST, and there, the first project that I jumped into, they had uh, a big project funded but not really uh, operational on uh, the fire behavior of upholstered furniture and mattresses. And mm -hmm. I realized that, you know, there had been done a few room burns and such, but I realized that um, this is not going to get anywhere in any decent manner unless we hearken up and listen to what um, Rexford Wilson was telling us and figure out how to quantitatively measure the size of the fire. And that, mm -hmm. of course, in engineering language, that's called heat release rate. That simply yep. means how big is the fire at any particular instant of time. And so I was not the first. There were uh, a couple of predecessors in the late 60s and early 70s that had uh, went to develop some instruments, some apparatus for measuring heat release rate. But they all had very, very serious problems with them, and they just weren't practical, reliable, accurate devices. So I had a management at the time that was very um, innovative, very um, uh, supportive of innovations, and they said, well, go ahead, if you think you have a better idea how to make this job well, just go and invent something and do it. And so that became my opportunity. I mean, I'm, I'm now in the science, fire science profession. Primarily, the, my biggest achievement people generally know me for is for inventing the, uh, the cone calorimeter and the furniture calorimeter. And they both work on a similar principle of... Um, it's called oxygen consumption principle of how you um, can measure heat release rate, but the cone calorimeter does it in these four by four inch samples, and the furniture calorimeter, much as the name would tell you, you know, it can stick in a chair or a sofa or something like that and measure measure a whole burning thing. So um, and nowadays, that, and that shows, shows that shows fire investigators are it, it calculates uh, how fast the things burn, right? At, at different uh, and different temperatures, um, heat release rates are are different for different types of materials. Correct? Exactly. And you see, nowadays, I mean, <laughs> younger people take all that for granted. That um, you know, one of the things that we have is there's a, a textbook called the Society of Fire Protection Engineers SFP Handbook, and there's a mm -hmm. chapter there that I, I've uh, put in there called heat release rates, and it's basically it's, it's not. It's not uh, any equations or things like that. It's a um, um, collection of data and graphs, and um, people like fire investigators can easily go and use that. And, uh, you know, the general rule is that if you want to know the heat release rate of something and you want to know it really accurately, you've got to drag the thing into some lab that's equipped for doing that and uh, pay them to measure it. But if you're happy enough with a approximate number, then you can go to the handbook and you can go and find um, something which may be fairly close to what you got and they can use those numbers and that may be uh, exactly what you needed and it's inexpensive, pretty easy to do and you have a um, citation basis. You can um, tell people where you got the number from and it's, uh, it's become uh, no longer 
it no longer needs PhD researchers to discover the principles. Any uh, any person that's a technical person can go and either get the data or commission the measurements. Would you again? Would you again repeat this for our listeners? The the handbook, the name of it, and, and maybe how you could get in touch, uh, get it. Yes, uh, the um, they, there is a, a the in, in addition to my ignition handbook, my ignition handbook is a huge handbook devoted only to one topic, ignition. But the um, Society of Fire Protection Engineers has a <coughs> has a handbook called the SFP Handbook of Fire Protection Engineering, and uh, that's um, a Unfortunately, pretty pricey. Uh, but if you're not a if you're not a member, uh, if you're a member, it's uh, uh, a ways more reasonable. But uh, it is, you know, you may find it in the library or whatnot. But the uh, a lot of the, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that a, a, a every every person interested in fire safety should use that handbook right. because if you know, like fire investigators, you know, if they don't have uh, if they're the type of folks that normally work in the, in the area, they're you have the experience in uh, fire services and whatnot, but they don't have PhD degrees in engineering. So a lot sure. of the material in that book is going to be sort of mathematics that um, the person can't really use. But there are a right. few um, chapters of significant practical interest, and the heat release rate one, I think, is the one that's uh, has seen the most uh, has seen the most usage by uh, people like fire investigators. Yes, and that's what, and of course, we talked to many, a lot of those. Uh, I know that you've written a, a textbook, heat release uh, in fires uh, with Miss Grayson in 1992. I know that was out. I don't know if it's still in print. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in here. Sorry to interrupt. I'm the timekeeper. Since you guys are remote, we need to go ahead and take a break, and when we come back, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that. Okay. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced, certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. FireAnalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Speaking of Fire. Thanks for joining us. Yes, uh, Doctor, before we went off, um, and uh, since I'm remote, I, I couldn't tell that we were short on time. Uh, we were talking about the heat release uh, in fires uh, by you and, and Mr. Grayson. Uh, that uh, was the only available monograph on the subject. Is it still, is it still available? That's a 1992 edition, though. Uh, that's, that's a good question, and uh, I think it is, but it's only in the UK now. Um, the, uh, I think that was important because it was the first and the most comprehensive study, but from an engineering basis, I think um, from a fire investigator's basis today or from some other uh, person who's working in a fire um, safety-related area, a uh, more current resource would be the heat release rate chapter in the SFP handbook because that's kept updated every uh, every few years. And uh, the last edition is only like about a year old now, so year and a half old. So it's um, uh, you get the latest information by go- going to that source. Okay, that's great. And, and you know, you have written something for us. Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, a couple of really good things. Uh, I have uh, and bought it immediately, and thank you for for uh, for autographing it for me uh, back uh, when it was first written and published. The ignition handbook, and um, and I, I always teach expert witness testimony uh, courses all over the country, and I promote that book and tell them that it would tell you the ignition temperature of almost any material you can think of, uh, and in it. Uh, you have a lot of this research in there, and you also apparently uh, you got you got other researchers also to contribute. Did you? Did you? Well, no. The ignition handbook uh, pulls together the uh, salient features of the research of uh, thousands of um, scientists. Right. But you know, I, I take full responsibility for any mistakes, abridgments, and interpretations by myself <laughs> because. Um, I'm the sole author of that handbook, um, unlike the SFP handbook, which has on the order of 200 authors, the Ignition handbook is, uh, is actually a, a one-man effort. Well, that's amazing because it's just wonderful, and, uh, and it is used, as you know, by fire investigators all over the world. And, um, and, and now uh, I had a fire investigator in my last class look it up. I said, you know, you really want to get this, and he said, Dyke, I can find a, a used one for 900 and something dollars um, on, uh, I don't know, on, on the Internet somewhere. And, uh, but there is, a, there is a, a, a less costly way for fire investigators to get it, right, Doctor? Yes. You know, unfortunately, about two years ago, we uh, sold out of all the uh, print, <coughs> printed copies. So, um, the, and it's economically exorbitant to make a reprint uh, of the, the the hardbound books. So the uh, what we do nowadays is that in, in my own website, people can buy a PDF. It has a complete text there, and you can of course search it the way you can search um, um, 
anything in the PDF documents. So it's not uh, a, you can't throw it in the back of your truck, but um, it is, I, I think the information is just as convenient in a somewhat different format, and it's uh, every bit as complete. And is, um, um, can you tell us what your website is, please? Uh, it's drfire.com, uh, spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R-F-I-R-E.com. Okay, and so they can, they can get the PDF version, um, and that's, uh, that's uh, well, I know it's not $900, it's, it's, uh, but it's a couple hundred dollars, correct? Yeah, it's $200, so it's a, it's a, it's a reasonable investment, exactly. That's what I think, too. In fact, it's, a, it's more than reasonable because if you need a – we have to identify, as you know, doctor, we have to identify not only the competent ignition source for the duration to ignite the first material ignited, but we need to know what that first material ignited is. And we want to need to know what the, what the, uh, the ignition temperature of that is, and we might even need to know what the heat release rate uh, of that particular material is. And I, 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 I applaud you for all of your work uh, giving us some tools to figure this out. Uh, well, th- well th- th- thank you, Mike. Yes, that, that I think uh, is a g- very good place for people to turn to that need tabulated information. And I have had um, numerous folks come to me saying that they are, um, that has fulfilled their needs. So I'm, uh, I'm very happy about that, yes. Yeah, and then you have another, another, um, another thing that was the latest edition being the 2014 of fire science applications to fire investigation. And yes. um, now that, that I'm, and I, I, that must be wonderful. I, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with that. I should, I should have known this already. Well, you know, let me just tell you very, very quickly what, what it is. The, um, a, what, what happens is that there are two series of conferences. Um, one is called Interflam, and the other yeah. is called Fire and Materials. And um, they take place every uh, two or three years. And um, the, uh, for the last, uh, oh, about 15 years or so, we have had a session there that focuses on nothing but fire investigation um, and fire litigation, because those two are, of course, very related issues. And so uh, there's a number of papers that, uh, and those, those uh, conference proceedings are a little bit hard to uh, chase down for uh, folks, and there's a whole bunch of them, so even if you wanted to chase them down, that's a great deal of trouble to have to go through. So what uh, I worked with the organizers of um, uh, uh, that series of conferences, and what we decided is that um, for um, a very low cost, and I can't remember what it is, but it's uh, it's very reasonable, um, they will sell to you a CD, which is, um, it consists of uh, every one of the fire investigation and fire forensics type of um, papers from that two whole series of conferences. So uh, it's, it covers uh, a huge uh, a array of topics by all kinds of authors, not just from uh, U.S. and Canada, but a lot from Europe, from Asia, from Australia, from various uh, far-off places. And I think it is... Uh, you're exactly right, Mike, that it's not uh, very well known uh, amongst the 
a fire investigation profession, but I think it should be because there is technical information there that's um, high quality, uh, useful, well-focused, and it really, you know, you do have to buy, it's, it's a CD that comes from um, London, England, so, you know, you won't, it's not on Amazon, so it won't show up in overnight shipping, but uh, you can get it pretty easily. And, how, and do you know, Doctor, how, um, what to search uh, to find that? I mean, do we search fire science applications for fire investigation, and will that pop up on the Internet? And, well, yeah, and there's a, it's a, the publisher is called InterScience Communications Limited, uh, one word, InterScience. Um, and um, the, a, that's, uh, they're located in London. They have a website where they have uh, a few things, and that's one of them. So uh, that's where I need to send people because that's, that's the only place, you know, they, it's not, uh, there isn't a local U.S. Uh, uh, distribution point. Right, so, okay, so InterScience One Word Communication Limited. We'll okay. be looking that up. I know that. My, I want to stay on top of this stuff. Um, <laughs> also, and, and you're, the, you're the guy. So, um, also, I wanted, I wanted to talk to you about something that, that in 2005, you, you became the first ever consultant that ASTM formerly retained. Um, to assist in the process of development of their fire test standards and, um, and uh, recommendations for standards from research on the uh, fire and collapse of the World Trade Center. Now, that must have been, you know, that was a terrible tragedy, that, a tragedy that uh, terrorist attack, but um, uh, that must have been extremely interesting to you, sir, and, and did they, have they produced uh, some standards from, from your findings or from yes. the... Uh, on research. And, yes, and that's a very interesting question, Mike. The, um, a, for, fortunately, my role, you know, as, as obviously uh, everyone knows, that's an exceedingly controversial area. And sure. uh, the, I was given a task which was not very controversial at all, but, um, but it was very um, important, and that is that the... Um, uh, NIST, when they did their report, they, um, they made this gigantic multi-volume uh, study, and one of the things that they did is they uh, in, spread out throughout those whole uh, collection of volumes. They said, well, we have some standard tests, and uh, they're, they're almost all by one organization, which is ASTM. It used to be called American Society for testing and materials, but they've now just dropped the words and it's just an acronym, ASTM. And so they, they publish all these uh, fire testing standards and other things like, you know, strength of steel, strength of concrete, et cetera. Um, and um, so they came to me and they said, well, um, you know, we know that NIST is uh, a, a making this study and they are saying that some of our standards need to be reevaluated, and not necessarily, uh, you know, nobody certainly at ASTM is saying that the standards are wrong, but what they're saying is that uh, in certain cases, uh, NIST was uh, making with the conclusion that maybe the standard needs to be beefed up, maybe it needs to be reoriented, maybe it needs additional instrumentation, things like that, and uh, they 
had that type of a comment spread through these thousands upon thousands of pages. So um, ASTM retained me and said, hey, no ghosts, uh, <laughs> spend a few months uh, poking through these uh, mountain of paper and produce uh-huh. this uh, concise report that says, that lists every um, standard of ASTMs that's uh, discussed there in some way that suggests that it uh, should be examined and then uh, give us a brief uh, summary in your own words what you think the issue is uh, as uh, how it should be um, how it should be uh, examined and possibly changed voted upon revised etc and so they, they did uh, they, they received my report and they you know the, the process is sort of never ending so there's no you know no they did not finish it because no ASTM standard ever gets finished, you know, it's, uh, unless a standard gets withdrawn, which occasionally happens when things are obsolete. But what happens uh-huh. is, that, is that every few years they will uh, find some things that need to be revised in view of whatever, and then it's updated and reissued in a new edition. And so that was the, the big picture within uh, which that work took place. I imagine that that was a, a heck of a, a task with those thousands of pages, and you produce a report of that little mite. Uh, I we do Donna teaches report writing and fire investigations, and I teach all over the country, not only expert testimony but report writing. I know your report must have been wonderful. I mean, how many how many pages was that? Did you think? Um, you remember? No, I think it's maybe around forty pages or so. Uh, it was, it was not, you know, it was intended to be readable. You know, if it were 500 pages, nobody would read it. So, um, the, um, it, and that, that was the hard thing is to take, you know, this, uh, I mean, my office became a real fire hazard at that point because <laughs> there was just an unbelievable amount of printout that was um, generated from, uh, from the work uh, uh, that NIST had, uh, had organized. But that was the, um, a, you know that was done for them, and ASTM was very um, uh, felt that it was a very good thing to uh, take the uh, this feedback and now have this um, little map uh, for themselves to walk through and look to see uh, you know wh- which which standards do they want. And, and they, by the way, they belong to some different committees, so it's not um, it, it isn't sort of simple to track uh, how how much improvements were made because it's kind of spread out all, all through um, the STM landscape, but um, I certainly felt that this was a exceedingly well uh, thought question for them to raise, and of course I was very happy to be able to do my share in actually organizing that in a managerial type of a sense and making this uh, roadmap uh, appear for them. Well, I, I appreciate your doing that. I'm a member of ASTM. I, I encourage all fire investigators to join ASTM. There are applicable ASTM standards to that that apply, and not only report writing and, and, uh, and also in testing E860 and testing of, of materials. And uh, and ASTM is a worthy um, a worthy uh, place and, and a, a worthy organization to belong to. And you have uh, no doubt contributed greatly to them, Doctor. We we so appreciate that um, because I know 
Um, I know that that is a controversial uh, subject, and actually uh, Jim Quintieri, uh, Quintieri, Dr. Jim Quintieri, will be talking about that next week on the show. Uh, he told me, he warned me in advance, I asked him to be on the show. We were going to talk about quantitative uh, uh, fire analysis, and he, and he told me, well, I'm going to bring up something controversial, and I said, okay, so I'm getting ready <laughs> with you. <laughs> so, Doctor, what sort of interesting things in the field have you been doing more recently? Well, there's a number of sort of things of very di- different uh, sorts. Um, the uh, smoldering fires are something that's uh, often very important to understand and understand correctly when you're trying to figure out um, what happened in a, in, in a fire. And so I've had a chance to assemble the first ever um, massive and comprehensive uh, review of smoldering fires, but specifically from a point of view of fire investigators. In other words, there have been um, some people who tackled it from the point of view of the mathematical uh, equations that uh, might be involved in all of that, and that's, of course, great if you're a uh, mathematician or a physicist, but it's less useful if you're um, a, actually somebody out in the field who's working on investigating fires. So I took the point of view that uh, the information uh, is even more important, good, correct, helpful information is even more important to fire investigators. And so I developed uh, about a 75-page uh, review that uh, approaches it all from the um, the point of view of the fire investigator, and now the question is uh, a, where to publish it because uh, it's uh, publishing a 75-page pa- <coughs> paper turns out not to be an easy task. But this this will happen sometime in, in in the near future. Will you please keep us informed, Doctor? Or whenever that uh, comes up, we certainly are uncertainly interested. In my company and my. Um Alliance of 200 investigators all over the country are certainly will be uh, waiting in anticipation for that. We deal with a lot of smoldering fires as we throughout our careers, and uh, the more research and the, the more um, reviews, uh, the better. Uh, we can all learn from each other. Absolutely. Uh, so another thing that's been of uh, great interest to me recently is that. Um, in 2013, we had a horrific explosion in Texas uh, where basically a good part of the town called West uh, Texas blew up due to a, a storage of ammonium nitrate fertilizer. And um, so I got to be working very heavily on that uh, uh, case, and I started doing research, started writing articles on ammonium nitrate explosions and safety of the storage of ammonium nitrate. And that turned out to be very interesting because what uh, sort of at the uh, first look at it presents itself as an explosion safety is really a fire safety problem. That uh, it turns out that there's not been a single facility where ammonium nitrate fertilizer is stored that blew up that did not have the initiating event being an uncontrolled fire. So once you realize that, it becomes fascinating because you realize that while you would think that preventing explosions is a rather difficult task, uh, doing something to make sure you do not have an uncontrolled fire is not so difficult. 
that, yes, there has to be some willingness. You can't just have a, a wooden barn where you store material and expect it to be okay. But we have known for over 100 years how to make things that are non-combustible, that cannot uh, burn, basically, because uh, that technology is old. And so that, to me, was very, very educational to um, to realize that the um, something that sort of looks at first glance like a very complicated issue in explosion dynamics becomes something much simpler, becomes, uh, hey, how do we enforce uh, the notion that these types of storage facilities should be built in such a way that uh, uncontrolled fire does not happen? And we know that our grandparents knew that. Uh, it's simply some willingness to... Um, to apply it, not uh, need for new uh, technical terrain. Right. You know, I worked a uh, six fatality firefighters were killed in Kansas City, six of them in 1988 due to an explosion of ammonium nitrate in uh, two different trailers. But you're right. The initiating thing was a fire in a pickup truck, which uh, which got to the uh, the ammonium nitrate eventually. Um, and causing uh, and causing these explosions and deaths, um, of course, and it's also been used as a, in terrorist uh, um, activities, uh, ammonium nitrate. So I'm so happy to hear that uh, there that you're working on that. That West Texas thing. Um, uh, so I don't remember how many fatalities it was, but it was uh, it was definitely a horrible explosion. And, and but the, the uncontrolled fire was first. So. That uh, you're right. I don't. I don't think I've ever heard of anything other than, uh, um, you know, other than that uh, the uh, Oklahoma City thing. There wasn't really a, a based on a fire, right? Yeah, there were actually uh, 15 um, people that died in that fire, and the arithmetic gets a little bit funky because the um, it was a volunteer fire department, and some of them were sort of associated. Uh, firmly and some are associated loosely so it's the majority certainly where on the order of 10 or 11 or so where uh, a, a local volunteer firefighters but then the most of the others were basically helpers in that um, uh, in that effort and um, a, you know what's uh, what was especially uh, sad is that the um, uh, the in these uh, a, a legal um, a, a, a upshot of that event. The um, uh, defendants were taking the the posture that the, um, a, the the fire department is incompetent and negligent, and uh, the what I point out to them uh, that that's not true is one of the unfortunate fatalities was a gentleman who was a, happened to be there helping out, a career full-time fire captain for the city of Dallas Fire Department. Now, mm. there's hardly a more competent uh, uh, fire institution possible than one of these um, um, fire departments of the largest cities in America. And sure. um, the, uh, the fact that he was caught unawares and very tragically 
perished uh, shows us that to uh, to take this posture, you should blame these folks for a, being insufficiently educated or trained is really not the way to go. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that information. We really appreciate that. Yeah. So it's it's a, but you know I think we need to do more because we need to we need to value our our um, first responders and we really. Uh, having them blown up is absolutely the worst possible thing that can be done. So we have to improve the safety of those types of facilities to um, reduce that type of uh, uh, likelihood occurring. And unfortunately, neither government nor, um, uh, nor industry has been very forthcoming in making that happen, and that is um, uh, that I'm uh, fighting that battle and... Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's okay. Well, well look, uh, thank you, uh, doctor, and uh, for that because I know all the firefighters in the country, well, and and internationally because this goes international. Well, thank you for your kind comments. Yeah, we want to keep them safe. That first and foremost. So, and I want to say now because we're at the end, uh, we only have a couple minutes, doctor. Thank you so much. Um, I didn't, I didn't jump in there. You, you have so much information. We could have had you on all day with the information that you have, but we really appreciate you being on the show and we really appreciate everything you've done for fire safety, fire science, uh, research, everything. Thank you, Donna. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I, I didn't realize we were so short on time. Um, and I guess I, I, that's why I said I'm a remote, so I can't get there. So um, listen, doctor, thank you so very much for your help. I know you're working on a new book, Electrical Fires and Explosions which is similar to the Ignition Handbook. I want you to keep me informed so I can buy it immediately <laughs> and get another another author, uh, autographed copy, if that's okay. Uh, yeah, that's certainly, and I, I look forward to finishing it. It's, I can't give people a, a, a time schedule because it's still a, a work in progress, but uh, I've certainly written more than 1,000 pages, so it's, uh, it's, it's well along. All right, sir. Well, thank you very much for being here. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please come back. And when you come back, please come back to Speaking of Fire. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Speaking of Fire. Please join your hosts, Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, for another edition of our program next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember to be careful this week and every week.